0: The
1: first degree. First degree. First degree.
0: First degree. First degree. First degree. degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
1: It was like I was reading about a stranger. Like somebody I had never met. It was not the person I had worked with. It was just somebody who was completely foreign to me at that point. And even to this day, I just can't. I cannot. I can't. I cannot fathom that he could have done this. Welcome to
2: The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I am across the country from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And before we start this episode, I just wanted to remind any new listeners that we have or old listeners that have been with us since the beginning, we are a crowd-funded podcast in the sense that we tell stories from our listeners from the first from the first perspective of a listener that has been connected to a murder or a crime or a stranger than fiction story, and we need your submissions. You know? Yes,
3: and when Jack says fund, she means with co-
2: content funding.
0: Content funding. Yes. yes, not crowd funded
2: by money. Money. Yes. <laughs> uh, we do not have a GoFundMe. Uh, or anything we don't like have that. that anything like that. I mean, crowdfunded in the way, not crowdfunded, crowd it's crowd sourced. Crowd-sourced. Crowd-sourced. Yes. Crowd sourced. I'm exhausted. Sorry, guys. Crowd podcast. So if you're listening out there and you are connected to a murder or a crazy story, please write us. Hello at firstgreepodcast.com We would love to hear your story. And no story is too small or too insignificant in your mind. So we would like to hear it all.
0: And not just you, but you probably have a friend, you might have a sister or a brother, invite them, you know, introduce that to them, your parents and aunt, invite them and say, hey, you know what, it'd be really cool if you told your story here.
2: Yeah, write us in. Yes, I concur. All right. Well, Billy, what day is it today?
0: I will say that, you know, today is September 15th. There's more days than I've ever seen before. There's a lot. Including... You know, we've had National Cheeseburger Day, but they doubled down, literally. It's National Double Cheeseburger Day. Ooh. I had a really
3: good burger yesterday.
2: Ooh, from where?
3: Well, I went to In-N-Out, and the line was way too long. So I went to Ooh. Astro Burger, and it was shockingly good. Astro
0: Burger. has a good – they have a good shake, too. It was oh. so good, and I was
3: really craving one, so it just hit the spot.
0: No, everybody go get a burger today. Yes. Yum. What else is there, Billy? It's also National Linguini Day, if you want to add to that. Mm, National Pass. School Backpack Awareness Day.
2: Oh, do we need to be aware of
3: backpacks? We need to be aware.
0: Okay. Wait, and you then- know what?
2: I was at uh, where was I? Like an REI or something. Jared was getting some kind of something, and I saw a JanSport backpack, and it really brought me back. I miss JanSports. There was not. It was a classic backpack.
3: Yeah, everybody but they are nostalgic. One.
2: Yeah, they're nostalgic. I used to write all over it, and I was like, this feels really good with like gel great. pens. You mm-hmm. can write on with gel pens. I'd write, I love Leo, Leonardo mm-hmm. DiCaprio, all over my backpack. <laughs> Who didn't? Who didn't love Leo? Uh, what else is there, Billy?
0: Anything else good? Uh, international Dot Day. It, it's Make a Hat Day. There's actually two hat days. Does it Make a Hat Day and and uh, National uh, Felt Hat Day? National oh. Throw Your
2: Hat Away, Billy Jensen Day. <laughs> yep, Billy's wearing his hat. No surprise there. And he's backlit himself, so we can't really see him. <laughs> so exactly, I appreciate yes. that.
0: Yeah, I know my, know my audience
2: really grainy background a nice hat looking very elusive, you know We love you billy. Thank you Okay, well that is enough of that So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety
0: because this could be you
3: Today's case, while unique in many aspects, is like so many others we cover here on The First Degree, where we think we can get a sense of a person from the mundane interactions we share with them. A smiling, cheerful coworker, the parents of one of your kid's friends, your brother-in-law, your son's girlfriend, the list goes on and on. We pick up snippets of what people around us say, and we make quick conclusions about the character of these individuals to assess whether we're safe around them or not. Most of the time, our instincts about people don't lead us astray. But most of the time is not all of the time. So we all need to be prepared at any given time to be smacked in the face with the reality that we're not safe around everyone. And potential killers are often masters of deception.
2: So today's case takes us back to Thursday, July 5th of 2012. Songs on the charts were Maroon 5's Payphone, Rihanna's Where Have You Been, and the number one song was Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. It really brings me back. True classic. True classic. Movies and theaters were The Amazing Spider-Man, Ted, and Magic
0: Mike. The setting for today's case is technically Staten Island, New York, but we're going to be starting off in Houston, Texas. Now, Houston is the fourth most populous city in the U.S., with over 2.3 million people, and those people speak 145 different languages. Thrillist actually ranked the city among the most seven impressive American cities in 2017 for population, affordability, and strong economy. It's diverse, it's a booming area, and Alexis knows this from personal experience, that they truly have excellent queso, which is pretty much her favorite food. Douse it all in case. <laughs> Douse it all in queso, oh, <laughs> bathe in it, yes. Mm. Back in 2009, this is also where our first degree, Katie, was an English teacher at Andy DeCaney High School.
1: So the high school is actually in spring ISD. Spring is like one of the suburbs of Houston because Houston is ridiculously big. So it's just kind of one of the outskirts in that area.
3: It was a new school and it needed a new staff. And the English department needed to hire some great teachers to meet the demands of the student body. During the 2008 to 2009 school year, Katie was introduced to a new colleague she'd be working with, a 27 year old teacher named Jonathan Krupe.
1: It was only the second year that the school had been open. It's a low socioeconomic school, so it was, a, it was kind of a rough district and a rough school. So it was, you know, I mean, it was great that we had a male English teacher because, you know, a lot of these kids didn't have guys or fathers in their lives. So we always loved when we had male teachers come in because it was a good role model for them.
2: Katie was stoked to have a male English teacher to add to the department. And in fact, Katie was the English 1 team lead. And we're not going to get into the minutiae of what that means, but all you need to understand is there was sort of a hierarchy amongst each category of teacher, and she was number one, which is awesome. Katie recalls her first impressions of Jonathan, who kids would know as Mr. Krupe.
1: So Jonathan was an English 1 teacher our second year we were open. He was a nice guy. He was funny. He was a New Yorker. You know, I'm a native Texan. So, automatically, there's a little bit of, you know, ribbing there that goes on. But he was super enthusiastic. He was excited to kind of start over in Texas and, and kind of get the feel for Texas education. And, I mean, just a great guy.
0: As Katie just mentioned, Jonathan Krupe was from New York. More specifically, Staten Island. He was born, raised, and had lived there his entire life. Staten Island is also where he met his wife, Simonette. At this point, when Katie met Jonathan in Texas, they had only been married for a little over a year.
3: And Simonette was from New York, too but she had followed her husband to Houston for this teaching job. And the reason why they ended up in Houston was kind of interesting. So while Simonette and Jonathan were both teachers, in New York teachers are required to have a master's degree to get a teaching certificate. And they didn't have the master's degree yet. He had only a probationary teaching certificate. So he was forced to look for work outside of New York. Texas was one of the states where this probationary certificate would suffice temporarily, at least. So he had to be in pursuit of his master's degree. But again, the specifics of this are a little tricky. So don't, you know, crucify us if we mess this up. If you're a teacher and you're like, nope, you know, it's there was some technicality where it made it easier to work in Houston.
2: So that's where he went. And Simonette followed him. And Jonathan settled into the school quite nicely. And from Katie's perspective, his students really took to him and responded positively to his teaching style
1: we had the same conference period so i would have classes at the same time that he was teaching but his students loved him i i mean again it's you know an area where there aren't a lot of male role models and so to have a male teacher it it was always you know something that was positive and the kids really respected having a guy as a teacher and he was very laid back with them you know he would joke around with them. And he was, I mean, I can remember him, like, asking them for advice on buying a car. And, you know, they would be like, No, no, Mr. Krupe, that's not cool. And, and, you know, we, it it was just a fun kind of relationship where he would play the cool guy, so to speak. I mean, you know, teachers are only so cool, right? But it was, it was a way to to bond with them and to, to try and get a little bit of respect, mutual respect between us and the students.
2: In addition to getting along swimmingly with the students, Jonathan also settled in pretty effortlessly with his colleagues, who were pretty tight-knit. And so much so to the point where the English department developed a weekly ritual, one that I really enjoy. They would get margaritas at a Mexican restaurant for happy hour every Friday before they all went their separate ways for the weekend. And the teachers, they'd talk about what you'd probably expect, mostly work, and they would celebrate the high points of the job and commiserate over the lows. And it's during these interactions where Katie got to know Jonathan a little bit better.
1: Honestly, it was, like, the way he talked about her, like, it was, oh, she was always up on a pedestal. He was never good enough for her. She, you know, loved him, despite the fact that he was this goofy, you know, English major, you know, English majors. We have a, we have a way about it. He he truly like every time he talked about her, it was nothing but praise. And you know, here the rest of us are like complaining about our spouses, and you know, just kind of shooting the breeze as coworkers do. And and his was always positive. You know, all the other teachers, which of course the majority are female, right, would kind of look around and be like, man, I hope my husband talks about us like that whenever he's gone. You know, and it was it was really sweet the way he would speak about her and the fact that he always wanted to be with her.
0: Katie also shared what the context for these sweet things Jonathan would say about his wife was for. When he would explain that he had to go home to be with her, it was because he empathized with the fact that he had uprooted their lives to take this job in Houston. And she didn't know anyone or have any friends in Texas.
1: We would all just be chatting and hanging out and he wouldn't stay long and it was always because he wanted to get home to his wife and she you know didn't know anybody it was their first year in texas all their family was back in new york she hadn't found a job down in texas yet so she was pretty much just kind of on her own so the
3: female teachers in this group of friends are thinking to themselves what a great guy considerate to his wife compassionate with kids what's not to love katie's experience with jonathan was nothing but positive His students loved him, and he fit in well with the other teachers in the department. So she was disappointed to learn that Jonathan's first year at Andy DeCaney High School, teaching alongside her, would also be his last. Here's Katie explaining the reason behind Jonathan's departure from the school and from the state of Texas.
1: It was a very short time. It was only a year. So New York requires teachers to have master's degrees. And he was getting his degree, so he was like on a probationary certificate in New York kind of thing. And so when he moved to Texas, his certificate came through, like his teaching certificate came through, but then when they went to renew his contract, like that probationary certificate had expired. And so he was no longer certified to teach and therefore he couldn't get his contract renewed. And that's ultimately why they ended up moving back to New York. To sum that
2: all up, Jonathan had to go back to New York because his temporary probationary certificate had expired. So the same problem that forced them to go to Houston in the first place was now forcing them back to New York so that Jonathan could hopefully finish his master's and resolve this issue. And while Kitty was bummed for the school to lose one of their great teachers, she understood. And ultimately, she moved on, as we all do, when colleagues and friends constantly move in and out of her personal orbits.
1: He was a great teacher. He had great reviews. His scores were good. I mean, we had literally no complaints. No complaints. I was disappointed that he left.
0: And as time moved forward, Katie and Jonathan would keep in touch via email. And these correspondences were congenial and for the most part revolved around swapping lesson plans and teaching ideas.
1: I was happy to work with him and even, you know, over the next few years, like every now and then he'd email me and he'd be like, hey, that Romeo and Juliet project, can you send that to me? And I'd be like, yeah, of course, you know, where are you at? And he'd tell me the name of the school he was at and, you know, just very infrequent communications, but still friendly and and cordial. And I, I would have had no problem working with him for a longer period of time.
0: Beyond these infrequent emails, frankly, Katie didn't think about Jonathan Kruppi very much. I mean, think about it. How often do you think about old coworkers or colleagues? Not super frequently. But all of that would change on July 5th, 2012, when she received a text from another teacher who had been on the same team as both Katie and Jonathan back at Andy DeCaney High School.
1: It was so bizarre. So one of our, our other teachers who had been on our team texted me and said, hey, did you see Mr. Croupy has been arrested for killing his wife? Okay, so what the hell? Katie's jaw dropped.
3: Mr. Jonathan Croupy, the same guy who gushed about his wife, Simonette, every chance he got. The same guy who cut happy hour short to go be with her so she wouldn't be alone. No way. It couldn't be the same guy. And I was like, no, he hasn't.
1: Like, no way. So, of course, you know, what we do, we Google. So I went and Googled it, and I saw the story, and, like, I saw his story.
3: Jonathan Krupe had a story all right. And what a story it was. And to paint the full picture, and to answer the question as to whether Jonathan Krupe really did murder his wife, you know the drill. we got to go back to the beginning, to 2006. Year Jonathan and Simonette met. Here we go.
2: So the Kruppies had met back in 2006 at William H. Maxwell High School in Brooklyn, where they both worked as instructors. Jonathan was an English teacher, and Simonette taught social studies, and both of them were 24 years old. And Jonathan had earned his probationary teaching certificate and was also working on his master's degree. And to clarify, because we know all this nonsense about Jonathan getting his teaching license and the teaching requirement mandates that vary from state to state. So in New York, you can work as a teacher for five years after your bachelor's degree, as long as you attain your master's degree within those five years, which was both of their plans. And it's essential that you actually get your master's if you want to keep teaching. So early in his career, when Jonathan was just 24 years old at this point, he was able to teach.
0: Okay, so anyway, Simonette was described as fun-loving, happy, and wonderful. Her family lovingly referred to her by the nickname Sissy. She was originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and her dad was in the Air Force, so the family moved around constantly, eventually settling in New York by 1988. She earned her bachelor's degree from the College of Staten Island, and she got it in an education. Another thing about her, she was a Disney buff just like me. The romance between the two educators grew quickly. And the pair married a year later in 2007.
3: Right. That following year, they moved to Houston, Texas for Jonathan's new job, which you heard about in the beginning of this episode. It's where Jonathan met his colleague and our first degree, Katie. But it was after Jonathan and Simonette's departure from Texas and their move back to New York, which prompted the couple to encounter their first round of marital, we'll call them snags or issues. Once the couple returned to the area, they moved to a neighborhood called New Springville into an apartment complex called Golf Green Manor. The community was made up of two-story condo apartments, which sat across the street from a golf course. The Kruppies' apartment had an unconventional modern design to it, where the roof came to an obtuse angle and the walls were made of red brick. And right beside the home was a road that acts as the pathway to enter the rest of the community. And since they were next to one of the entrances, their apartment also sat very close to the public
2: road, which was Forest Hill Road. Despite the quick move back to New York, they were both hired as teachers at the School for Classics High School in Brooklyn. They got jobs, and Jonathan was nearing that five-year cutoff point for him to be able to continue to teach with his probationary certificate. But that was fine because he was in the final year of his master's program, so everything would work out perfectly for him. He would get his master's, and the two of them would continue their teaching careers. And upon their return from Houston, both Simonette and Jonathan were enrolled at the College of Staten Island to complete their master's degrees.
0: Both of them completed their programs. And after they were done, Simonette had actually ordered and then received a book that listed the names of everyone who was in the graduating class, kind of like a yearbook. And that's when she noticed something. Her husband Jonathan's name was missing. Concerned, she asked him about this. And Jonathan shrugged it off. And he was like, you know what? I know about it but he learned that the administrators actually didn't know how to spell his name, and they didn't get any confirmation from him on how to spell it, so he said they opted to leave his name out of the book.
3: All right, well, this seems like a red flag because Croupy is a four-letter last name. Five? Five-letter last name. <laughs> and uh, not not super hard to sound out phonetically, so to me, this is a red flag, as is my um, my spelling shortcomings. But anyways... If any of you listening to this end up having a partner who's trying to pass off some bullshit like this as the truth, usually our intuition kicks in and we can sniff this bullshit out in an instant. Simonette was an educator. She's not an idiot and she was not buying this excuse. So she started digging around and she was furious and heartbroken to learn that her husband, Jonathan, had been lying to her. Not just Little White Lies lying, like consuming devil life shit kind of
2: lying. Jonathan didn't graduate. And this isn't a situation where he simply failed his tests and that's why he didn't graduate. He wasn't even going to his classes at all. So where the fuck was he when he was pretending to be in class?
0: In an effort to answer that question, Simonette continued digging. Fearing the worst, she looked at her husband's phone records and found that there was one particular number he was calling very frequently. And of course, her mind and probably all your minds went straight to the theory that her husband must have been having an affair. And you're right, sort of. That wasn't exactly the case. She called the number. And when someone finally answered, it was a woman who referred to herself as Miss Pumpkin, a sex worker.
3: Simonette learned that Jonathan would rendezvous with her instead of attending his master's degree classes. So at this moment, Simonette's life really was sort of unraveling. Beyond the sex with this other person, Jonathan had been telling her elaborate, intricate, calculating lies. And it had been going on for months at least. Lies that not only jeopardized her ability to trust her husband, but also their livelihoods. Because remember, there was that cutoff. He needed his master's degree in five years. Not to mention, he was also spending money on these women and not pursuing this master's degree. What we're hearing about Jonathan is clearly in stark contrast to the man Katie met at Andy DeCaney High School. So we asked Katie what she thought when she first
1: heard this stuff. The only thing I can think of was it was some form of addiction. It was drugs. It was the, I mean, prostitutes were involved, some kind of addiction that he was unable to conquer and that drove him to do something that... In a rational state of mind, he would never have done. I mean if in and, and somebody you know you work with, I mean, obviously you're not super close with your coworkers necessarily, but I mean, we were close enough to go out and get drinks once a week and you know, we sat through meetings together and you know we had we had weekly meetings in my classroom and went over you know lesson plans and talked about students and and of course talked about our personal lives as well. and that person, Was not a killer. He wasn't. Katie could be right. Maybe Jonathan
2: was struggling with a sex addiction. And you know, we know little about the ins and outs of Simonette and Jonathan's marriage, but we do know that something like this could completely shatter the trust and derail the relationship beyond repair. And that is kind of what happened. Despite making attempts to repair what Jonathan broke, Simonette couldn't get past the betrayal. The fighting between the couple continued to escalate, and tension continued to heighten.
0: Eventually, Simonette, who was miserable by this point, decided that she wanted out of this relationship with this man she had come to realize she didn't really know at all. Her computer search history revealed that she had started doing research about divorces in the state of New York.
3: Now, by this point, it's July of 2012. It's the summertime, obviously. So in the midst of Simonette's divorce research, she's also still living with her lying, cheating husband. But on top of that, she's also preparing to start teaching summer school classes at her school. So while she's pissed at her husband, she's probably just trying to keep it all together and keep things friendly and cordial until she can make her next moves as far as extracting
2: herself from this relationship. And it's right around this time that Simonette posted something really strange and really shocking on her Facebook feed. She wrote, Krupee and I survived a shootout today. Thank God we are okay. I'm sure over summer school we'll find out what the fighting was about. The Cypress Hill projects are no joke. And then she also wrote, To all the wannabe gangsters of Staten Island, be grateful you have what you have and stop trying to live a lifestyle you will never understand. She also called the shooting a, quote, hazard of working in East New York, Brooklyn.
3: All right, so that is super weird. And the question is, is there anything to be read between the lines here? She said that they were almost killed. But in the comments, Simonette wrote, Kruppi and I are fine. No worries. I didn't mean to scare anyone. So she couldn't have felt she was in much danger. And the shooting happened roughly seven minutes away from where the school is located.
0: Days later, July 5th, 2012, was an ordinary day in the Croupy household. And while we weren't there, we can guess that it was probably tense. And Simonette was probably taking it in stride as they pretended things were fine when they really weren't. Oh, and also the couple was two days away from their fifth anniversary, which I'm sure was a bummer because the couple was not in a great place. So it probably would have been a normal yet strained day where both Jonathan and Simonette would have gone to work or run errands and done their normal day-to-day activities before returning home. All seemingly normal,
2: but the "quote unquote" seemingly normal facade that the Krubies had been presenting outwardly would all come crashing down at around 1.30 in the afternoon that day. And this is when Jonathan called nine one one. He was hysterical, claiming that he had just gotten home and found his wife lying in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs and Jonathan is making a lot of noise and he's screaming. So this alerted the attention of a neighbor who would later recall hearing Jonathan pacing back and forth and talking on the phone saying, "Quote, she's dead. I came home, it was hot. She was dead. She's dead." And after Jonathan called 911, prompting law enforcement to respond to the home, Jonathan then called his in-laws, Simonette's parents. And he reportedly said, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Simonette's dead. Please come." So after this rather
3: in-fucking-sensitive to Simonette's parents, which, you know, no context, no explanation, just a frantic, hysterical call, they were probably in total despair and being caught off guard by this information. You know, they are on their way over to the scene. And another neighbor reported seeing Jonathan pacing outside, screaming, "'My wife was murdered,' over and over. Jonathan appeared to be hysterical, and he waited outside for the police to arrive."
0: When the police finally arrived, they entered the home to find Simonette laying face down in a pool of her own blood at the bottom of the stairs. She had been stabbed several times in her torso. There was no sign of the murder weapon. The house seemed to be in disarray as though things had been rifled through. So police may have thought initially that this was a robbery and that Simonette had interrupted them, causing the intruder intruders to attack her. It was too soon to know for sure what they really were dealing with.
2: And Jonathan, who is still in hysterics, spoke to the police, explaining how he unknowingly stumbled into the crime scene when he arrived home. And he gave them his accounting of the day, explained that he left the house at around 730 in the morning with plans to run some errands in Brooklyn. And according to court documents, he told investigators that his wife needed books for a summer school class that she was teaching. So he was going to look into getting those for her. He also said that he got his car inspected, went shopping for shoes at five different stores, and despite his valiant effort to get a new pair of kicks, he failed and returned with nothing. Then he said that he went to look for some discounted theater tickets, but was unsuccessful in that too.
3: He said that he texted his wife twice that morning after leaving the house, but didn't hear back from her. Jonathan also said that they must be dealing with a home invasion or robbery gone bad. And frankly, at this point, the cops didn't know what they were dealing with. They needed to do some investigating before they came to any conclusions or rules anything out. They started with looking for surveillance footage at the complex where the Kruppies lived. But despite the fact that it was 2012, there were zero security cameras at the Gulf Green Manor complex. So there was no way to immediately corroborate or dispute the story of this grieving husband. Katie recalls the original story that she read when she first heard that Jonathan had been implicated in this mess
1: that there had been a home invasion and that he had come home to find her that way, I believed it 100%. 100%. There was no doubt in my mind that that was the legit story and it was the truth because there was no way he could have done this. Absolutely no way.
0: When the police began investigating Simonette's murder, they were not privy to the marital problems that the couple was facing. So initially, in those first hours, they operated under the theory that perhaps this was a robbery gone wrong. But then they started looking around, and a closer examination of the residence revealed that nothing had actually been stolen from the house. There were also no signs of forced entry. And there was another thing that pointed away from an intruder. The couple had two dogs, and while they had been locked away in a room when the actual murder happened they absolutely would bark like crazy if an intruder had entered and no neighbors reported hearing any dogs barking.
2: So as the police explore this robbery angle, they also remain open to the possibility that this was a personal attack and they dig into Simonette's social media and they find that strange post. You remember the one it's about their shootout that they survived and looking at this, the police are wondering if it's a coincidence that Simonette made this post and is murdered shortly thereafter. And this presents some prospects. Could Simonette's murder have been the result of a gang-related shooting incident that the Kruppies witnessed? While this is unlikely, they really just didn't know yet. And obviously, the next
3: logical place for police to look was right towards Jonathan. Initially, he stuck to his story and played the part of a grieving husband, and he did it pretty well. But in the days immediately following, his behavior started to shift. His father-in-law later recalled... But he asked Jonathan who he thought could have done this. And Jonathan's response was, quote, we need to get beyond this. All right. So that's a really uh, alarming response, especially when this has happened so recently. So with that, the parents immediately recoiled and started seeing their son-in-law in a completely different light. When Jonathan was questioned by police, he was not in hysterics as he had been back at the scene initially. He was emotionless and acted perturbed by all the questions they had for him. As we know, though, people grieve in mysterious ways, and everyone is different. And maybe that's what we're dealing with here.
0: Simonette's autopsy would reveal that she was stabbed 14 times. 11 in her back, and 3 on her neck. The Emmy noted that the knife had gone so far into her body that the part where the blade and handle meet actually left a mark on her skin. The stab wounds to her neck and back pierced her lung, aorta, and jugular vein. The doctor also concluded she died slowly by bleeding to death. But he couldn't say how long she would have been clinging to life.
2: And along with the stab wounds, Simonette's body also had several other bruises and scrapes on her foot, arm, and shin, which the doctor said was likely from falling down the stairs in the midst of the attack. And as a reminder, Simonette was discovered dead at the foot of the stairs in her home. And the Emmy also stated that there is a deep wound on her right ring finger, and this is consistent with a defensive wound that could have come from a struggle with her attacker.
3: Five days later, at Simonette's funeral, Jonathan's pendulum of emotion swung back the other way. He sobbed the entire time and clutched a rosary in his hands. And onlookers observed that when he approached the casket, he kissed two long-stemmed roses and put them on top of the casket with the bouquet. By this point, the police had been trying to figure out whether Jonathan had a hand in his wife's murder or not.
0: These things take time. In the months following Simonette's death, Jonathan was no longer living in the apartment that his wife died in. He moved in with his parents. And he seemed to be living as elusively as possible because there was very little information about what he was doing. Some people also thought it was suspicious that he never made any public statements about his wife. He just seemed to be trying to move on as quickly as possible.
2: Eventually, the police were able to secure a search warrant, allowing them to search Jonathan's electronic devices. And once those searches were complete, the police became aware of Jonathan's penchant for sex workers. And there were two women in particular that Jonathan seemed to call and solicit pretty often. And in closely examining the phone records, they noticed something pretty alarming – Jonathan had actually spoken to his favorite sex worker, Miss Pumpkin, on the very same day that his wife was murdered. And this is not a good look.
3: The digital investigation included combing through Jonathan's computer search engine history as well. And what they found kind of makes your blood run cold. The searches included how to throat slash, what destroys DNA, how to stab somebody, How to clean up a crime scene
2: to use Clorox for DNA. Wow.
3: Not a very creative
2: criminal. No. I was gonna say this literally looks like the search history from like a crime movie or something like like that.
0: Bad crime movie. Yeah. So, as damning as what those internet searches seemed to be, things were about to actually get worse. Law enforcement had developed a timeline for when they believed Simonette died. And the belief was that she actually had been killed between 2 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. Now, this is bad because based on Jonathan's own account, he had been at home with his wife until 7.30 on the day of her murder.
2: Five months after Simonette's murder, the police and the DA's office finally believed that they had enough for a bulletproof case against Jonathan Krupe. And they arrested and charged him with the second degree murder of his wife. And it's the news coverage of Jonathan Krupe's arrest which first alerted our first-degree Katie to what was happening.
1: I just couldn't believe it. I absolutely, like, all these stories I kept reading in the news about prostitutes and drugs and all this stuff. And it in my brain, like, I had this vision of him and I could not, I could not see this other side of this person whom I had known. And honestly, like, as... I was kind of Googling him. That's what I kept thinking. Like, I know they're going to find the guy. I know that they're going to say that, that you know, that this is going to be all resolved. I, you know, I felt so sorry for him for, you know, having no answers for so long and just kept waiting for for an answer, you know, hoping that he would get that closure. In fact, even after reading about all the
3: evidence they had, Katie still was not convinced of Jonathan's guilt. So as Jonathan remained in jail awaiting trial, she was certain that the whole thing was a mistake, that would get sorted
1: out with time. So like, you know, obviously these things take time to kind of unfold. So every few months or so, I would just kind of Google his name and just like follow up to see, you know, oh, has he been released yet? Have they caught the real person? And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I just, it, it was like I was reading about a stranger, like somebody I had never met. It was not the person I had worked with. It was just somebody who was completely foreign to me at that point. And even to this day, I just can't. I cannot, I can't, I cannot fathom that he could have done this.
0: At that point, Katie could not believe Jonathan Krupe was a killer. But she was willing to accept that he was a liar. And here's why. Remember how Jonathan was working in Texas due to that loophole, where he was able to exploit that in terms of his probationary teaching certificate?
1: The rational part of my brain is like, well, yes, he's clearly a very good liar. There was some fishy stuff with his teaching certification that we find that found out later. You know, he kind of fudged the truth, so to speak. In order to get a teaching job, you have to be a certified teacher. So he presented himself as being certified in New York when really it was a probationary certificate pending his finishing his master's degree. That's why whenever he went to, they went to renew his contract, they pulled a certificate and it wasn't valid because he had never finished his master's degree and therefore was not certified in in New York. At the
2: time, Katie overlooked this lie about his teaching credentials, thinking it was just like a technicality issue.
1: We could have believed to be an honest mistake, you know, like he just thought that his certificate was good and didn't realize that it was probationary. Like, I mean, Teaching certificates can be complicated, especially when you're crossing state lines. So it was completely believable.
3: At Jonathan's pretrial hearing, he pleaded not guilty and denied that he killed his wife. This meant that there would be a trial. And the trial began in June of 2015. The prosecutors felt confident that they would get a conviction. The narrative was clear. Jonathan was having multiple affairs, engaging with sex workers, and paying for sex as often as he could. And beyond the feelings of betrayal that Simonette experienced, Jonathan was also hemorrhaging their money. Simonette had also become privy to Jonathan's lies about completing his master's program. Her husband's behavior had caused a rift between the couple, following by seething
0: resentment. The prosecution demonstrated that Jonathan had worked very hard in an attempt to give himself an alibi. They created a timeline and showed how Jonathan went to school to ensure his presence was documented on a surveillance camera. But he also ran several errands in Brooklyn to make it seem like he could not have been at home at the time of Simonette's death. But Jonathan didn't consider that law enforcement would figure out that Simonette was killed much earlier than Jonathan claimed.
2: And many witnesses were called to testify, including Miss Pumpkin, who was Jonathan's favorite sex worker. And on the stand, she was very candid and said that she knew Jonathan as Mike. She said that the two of them would meet up every six to eight weeks and he would pay her $300 an hour. And during her testimony, she also revealed that the very first time they had sex was in the master bedroom of the crewpie's home in 2009. After that, they would meet up at one of three Staten Island motels. Sometimes she would bring a friend and he would pay double. All of this is shocking. But what Miss Pumpkin revealed next would truly
3: be a bombshell. She was asked about the call that was exchanged between she and Jonathan on July 5th, the same day as Simonette's murder. So he called Miss Pumpkin at 11 a.m. to find out if she was available at 12.40. And he told her that he was looking for a quickie. She said that she was available and they met at the Comfort Inn. And after he had sex with Miss Pumpkin is when he returned home... To call nine one one and report that he found his wife, and that call came in, I believe, at one thirty. So, wow. if the prosecution's theory is correct, it means that he murdered his wife, went and had a quickie Ugh. with Miss Pumpkin, came back to the house and feigned this devastation at finding his wife in blood at the bottom of the stairs. It's really just Dude. emotionally savage
2: ultimate piece of fucking shit
0: garbage.
3: garbage really it's it gives you the like chills to think like you stood at an altar and said i do to this person like yeah. what happened what happened
0: what happened is that he's a piece of shit
3: but was he always like i don't do, know i i think so i think he was just a chameleon
0: mm. like, oh what yeah a crazy Probably.
3: what a crazy thing to do on top of evil but like what what is the thought process here
0: yeah and if you thought we were done with Miss Pumpkin's revelations, you'd be wrong. While she was on the stand, she also testified that she and Jonathan continued seeing each other in the month after Simonette was murdered. The two would meet once a week for 90 minutes in the home of Jonathan's parents. Because remember, Jonathan stayed with his parents after her death. When our first-degree Katie first heard all of this, she was floored.
1: That was the kind of stuff that I just didn't believe. I was like, the media is crazy. They're making that up. There's no way. I There was no way that was true. There was no way. And so, like, I mean, I guess it's true because, right, I mean, they testified about it in court and it was a part of the case. And so it it has to be true, but still, I'm like, I can't believe it's true.
2: Jonathan's defense attempted to counter all this damning evidence. His attorney specifically highlighted that there were no scratches, bruises, or blood on Jonathan that day, and this, according to them, did not point to a struggle between the two of them in the home. He then said that all the other evidence only proved Jonathan was a horrible husband and not a murderer. And during the trial, Jonathan's lawyers didn't even attempt to explain away the oh-so-damning internet search history that was found on the Kruppi's computer. But prior to the trial, his attorneys had tried to get the evidence barred from being included in the proceedings because, let's face it, it looks extremely bad for him.
3: After 270 exhibits and 27 witnesses testified, the jury returned with a verdict and convicted Jonathan Kruppi of second-degree murder. For Katie... It was the conviction that finally broke her belief in Jonathan's innocence.
1: I mean, when he was found guilty, I was like, well, I guess that means he did it. And I mean, even still today, it's hard to to believe that. And then the bombshell of it being him, that was when I just like fell out. I couldn't even believe it.
3: On September 23rd, 2015, Jonathan Krupe returned to court for his sentencing. A judge gave him 25 years to life behind bars, which was the maximum sentence, which would mean that 2037 is the very earliest he could possibly get out pending a parole hearing. In court, Jonathan apologized for his marital discord, but stated, I am an innocent man. And then off to jail he went. Peace out, scumbag.
2: And it's probably no surprise to anybody listening that Jonathan continued being a piece of shit behind bars. In 2016, it was revealed that he had created a profile on an online prison dating website called ConvictPenpal.com. So this website is for people who are incarcerated. It lists the date that they went into prison and when they're expected to be released. And on Krupi's profile, he said that he was funny. Handsome, which is gross, and open to a relationship with the right person.
3: And he's not handsome. No, I know that's subjective, but not in this case, because <laughs> it's the inside that counts, and he's not handsome there either.
0: Yuck. And wait till you hear what he wrote in his profile. It says quotes. Hey, ladies, are you awesome like I am? I'm looking for a fun, intelligent girl to stimulate my brain and possibly my heart. I'm not married, and I don't have any kids. No baby mama drama here. Being in jail sucks, but I'm an innocent man and I'm working on my appeal. Yeah, you're not married, but you forgot to mention you are in jail for killing your wife. So yeah, you aren't married anymore because of that reason. We asked Katie about it.
1: Hugely disrespectful. Hugely disrespectful and hugely inappropriate. When I said he kind of, you know, talked to the kids in a way that would make him seem cool to them, like, those were the types of phrases that he would use, right, so that he could kind of connect to the teenagers and speak their lingo, so to speak, and so, I mean, on one hand, it does sound very much like him and his, like, kind of joking self, but on the other hand, like, wow, that's so inappropriate, like, you are married, dude, you're a widow because you killed your spouse, like, oh, I can't, it's insane.
3: Simonette's mother made a Facebook post about the dating profile when she found out about it. She stated that she's concerned someone else's daughter could be in real danger should they get involved with him, followed by, I feel pain in my heart for my baby girl. I wish him nothing but death.
2: In 2019, attorneys for Jonathan Krupe filed an appeal, claiming that law enforcement didn't have probable cause for the search warrants to search Jonathan's electronics. However, the appellate division justices said that the warrants were issued because police believed that they would find evidence linking to the crime. And thus, there is no error in the trial. So his appeal was denied. And Jonathan, of course, still claims that he is innocent.
1: You know, it's kind of funny because that's part of what made it so hard for me to believe the fact that he never admitted it. It's like. I don't know. A part of me is like, well, maybe, maybe he didn't. But I mean, I've, I've read the articles, I've seen all the evidence that, you know, they've published, and it seems pretty clear that he did. I mean, you go back to the fact that, you know, he's embellished the truth in a lot of things. And maybe that's, you know, kind of a narcissistic part of him that he's Still trying to play the the innocent kind of geeky English teacher who doesn't do things wrong. I don't know.
0: From where we're sitting, we can understand why Katie clung to the belief that he was innocent for so long.
1: I've never known a murderer, <laughs> at least to my knowledge. And I guess like you want them to be, you want somebody who could do this to be scary and standoffish and to give off crazy vibes and to be somebody you would cross the street to avoid and Jonathan isn't any of those things. He's a friendly, funny New York guy. He's got the New York accent and, you know, he's got a kind of self-deprecating humor and likes English literature and can, you know, talk about literature with you. Like, I mean, I don't know. I guess a juxtaposition of having somebody who is, like, educated and a nice guy and then versus somebody who could actually kill somebody he supposedly loves is just something that I, I never thought I would need to comprehend. So maybe that's why I can't. What Katie
3: is referring to is the thing that scares us all about murderers and is likely part of your subconscious draw to the world of true crime. We all know a Jonathan a laid-back, funny guy with a charming accent who's good with kids. The Jonathans of the world win your trust. They're unassuming, they're calculating, and they operate behind the nice guy veneer. And they strike when you are least likely to see it coming.
2: huge thank you to katie for being our first degree for this episode if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell or know somebody who has a story to tell please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com you can follow us on instagram at the first degree at alexis linkletter at billy jensen at jack Vanick. join our facebook group we are talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because in your feed will be a brand new episode of killing time
0: and remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but
2: not that close. We tried a new thing. <laughs> happy double cheeseburger day. Mm, happy hat day.
3: Happy linguine awareness day. <laughs> Ew. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for the first degree producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers and Alan Santiago for podcast one. Sources for this episode are Staten Island Advance, NBC4 New York, CBS2 New York, True Crime Daily, New York Daily News, and as always, our 1st read re-guest is always our largest source.